Book Two, Chapter Two of Precious Pain by Mary Webb. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Noel Badrian. The Mug of Cider. The market was in the open in a paven square by the church. Each had his own booth, and the cheeses stood in mounds between. There were a sight of old women in decent shawls and cotton bonnets, selling the same as we had, butter and eggs and poultry. There was a stall for gingerbread and one for mince pies. There was a sunbonnet stall and a toy stall, and one for gewgaws such as strings of coral and china cats, shoe buckles and amulets and beaded reticules. It was a merry scene, with the bright holly and mistletoe, the cheeses yellow in the sun, and the gingerbread as brown and sticky as chestnut buds. The butcher stood at his door, which gave on to the marketplace, shouting his meat, and holding up a long shining knife, enough to make you think the French were coming. There was a woman selling hot potatoes and pig's fry and a crockman who put up his wares to auction, and every time the clock chimed he broke some at, keeping some seconds in readiness, which served to amuse the people. Then the mummers came along and gave us a treat, and in one corner the beast leech was pulling teeth out for a penny each, and had a crowd watching. What with them all shouting, and the mummers mouthing their parts, and the crash of broken china, and beasts lowing and bleating from the fair ground close by, and the chimes ringing out very sweet at the half-hours, you may think there was a cheerful noise. When we'd got rid of our goods, we went into the mug of cider for a snack. Ten or a dozen old men sat without, though the air was so nipping that they must have been starved. Each one was holding a great pewter tankard, and they were roaring out at the top of their voices, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not fear. Each one went his own way, and made his own tune, and I thought how angered Mr. Beguiledy would be if he could hear em making such an untuneful sound, for he was very particular over his row of flints, and when he struck them he was troubled if they didn't strike the note true. But when we were come by these old ancients, every one held his mug where it was, and stopped in his singing, and so sat with his mouth open and his eyes fast on me. They were like those new-fangled mommet shows with the little dolls that stop altogether when the showman unhands them. There they sat, with the inn behind them, and the frosty sunshine on their old, red, veiny faces, and a kind of frittened look. As we passed the bench, every head of them came round slow, and the score or so of eyes stared slantwise over the rims of their cups, as young owls will stare and turn their heads, watching you over their feathers. As we went through the dark doorway, with its door studded with nails like a prison, and came into the inn parlour, where sat the more genteel, I saw their looks fasten on me too, but more shyly. The farmers and their ladies, and two or three folk that had come by the early coach and were baiting there, 
and the squire's son, who was a parson in Silverton, and was on the way home for Christmas, and was taking some refreshment because his nag had cast a shoe, all of them looked up, quiet and careful, but very curious at me. All on a sudden I knew that all these folks, the grand ones within, and the old fellows without, were staring at my hair-shotten lip. They were thinking, according to their station and their learning, here's a queer outlandish creature. This is a woman out of a show, sure to goodness. Here be a wench turns into a hare by night. Hers a witch, an ugly hair-shotten witch. Maybe in the two three times I'd come to Lullingford in the past, they'd stared so, but then I was but a child and didna see. I could hear the old men without croaking like a lot of rooks, and one said, Dunna drink while she's by, it'll pison your innards. Another said, Dunna look upon the bagel, her'll put the evil eye on you, you'll dwine and dwine away. The folk inside looked at each other, and I wished I could die. For all the bitter cold and my thin gown, and us being far from the fire, I was all in a swelter. For indeed I loved my kind, and would lief they had loved me. And I felt a friendliness for the drovers and for the gentry, and the host and his missus. For they were part of my outing, and part of Lullingford, and of the world, that ever seized my heart in its hands, as a child will hold a small bird, which is both affrighted and comforted to be so held. I would lief have ridden forth and seen new folk, new roads, new hamlets, children playing on strange village greens, unknown to me, as if they were fairies. Come there I knew not whence nor how, singing their songs and running away into the dusk. Old folk wending their way along paths in meadows, of which I knew not so much as the name of the owner, to churches deep in trees, with all the bells a-ringing, pulled by men I never saw afore. Ah, I should dearly have liked that. Only the gist of it must ever be that the old folk looked kind as they saw me go by, and the children smiled or threw me a blossom, and that when I came to inn or tavern they'd say, Draw in to the fire now, dear art, for night thickens. Ah, I dearly her liked that. This made it all the more a shocking thing to me, that the real world was thus toward me. For living so apart, I had not truly felt my grief afore. But now I knew that I was fast bound in misery and iron, as the book saith. Ah, prisoned beyond a door, to which the great nailed door of the inn was but paper. As I was bending over my plate, so that my bonnet might hide the tears, a lady came in. She was a handsome piece, if ever there was one. She was lissom as a wand, dressed in a long scarlet riding coat and a highwayman hat to match, with a great swathe of chestnut hair tied in a bow. She'd got black eyes with no human soul in them, but sparkles instead, like a cat's eyes on a frosty night. Gauntlets on her little hands, spurs on her boots. 
she came in laughing from a talk with the old men on the bench. A besom, host, she says, we want a besom here. Everybody smiled and sniggered a bit. I knew well what she meant, for once when mother was talking to me, she said that if folk began to speak of besoms, I best go, since it was their way of saying I was a witch. But Gideon never noticed, for not being afflicted like me, he never thought of such things, and being used to me he didn't have it in mind that other folk met not be. And he was very deep in considering over whether Jancis or the big house and the maids and men were best, so it all went by him. The lady ran to the squire's son and clapped him on the shoulder, which made him frown because of his dignity, and she says, So you've come Christmasing like a good lad. Who's the woman with the hair shot and lip? He made a sign to warn her to talk soft, and nodded towards Gideon ever so little. Why, if yonder isn't young San of San, she says, flushing a bit and coming running across to where Gideon sat, very handsome in the blue coat with the brass buttons and the black band for father on the arm, and his eyes darkling over the thought of Jancis. I nudged him, and he stood up, and looked all the better for it being such a fine figure. She held out her hand, for the gentry were always friendly to the farmers, in especial to voters about election time, and she sparkled at him out of her black eyes and said, There's to be an election soon, and father's got some work for you, San. So you'd best come and see us one day, and take bite and sup, if your sweetheart can spare you. She looked very spitefully at me. Seemingly she thought Gideon was an only child, and so she chose to take me for his acquaintance, or else she chose to mock him, lashing him into her slavery by making him look a fool. Now Gideon was altogether with the squire as to politics, because of the corn tax, but he hadna made up his mind in good sadness whether he meant giving all those things up and settling down contented with Jancis and a crowd of little uns till death them parted. So he hummed and hawed a bit, and not being used to hear a hover from a common man, she lost her temper. So, so, you've no time, San, you've no time, I see, she says. You'll be dancing on Deerfall Mountain next Thomas Tide, no doubt. Oh, fine you'll look, San, with your missus here, and broomsticks all round and the moon shining. She laughed like a tinkle of jangled bells, and Gideon came to the knowledge of what she meant. He was ever slow, but sure, eh, terrible sure. That was one of the times I spoke of when I saw Gideon angered. His face had gone dark, and his eyes had the look as if the mere was running behind them, cold and bitter cold. He looked down at her so that she blenched, and he said very slow, Ma'am, this be my sister. If I've a mind to dance on the dearful mountain along of witches, I all. And if I've a mind to dance upstairs at the aunt ball along of the gentry, I all. But I wanna ask you for a partner, and I doubt I wanna be able to vote for squire neither. 
for can a man govern the land as can a govern his own womankind but lets his girl go about like a ripstitch rantipole he should have given you more stick ma'am dora bella calls her brother very much put about at her being in such a brawl they went out and gideon sat down and went on with his victuals nor did he eat a bit less hearty for it all though i could scarce touch a morsel so soon as he went off to buy the oxen i made haste to go from the place there were plenty of errands to do what with malt and sugar and tea to buy and boots for us all and tivy's present and a bit of baccy for gideon for he never bought any himself since if he was near with others he was near with himself also when i'd finished and bought it to three extras for christmas and packed all into the panniers gideon was ready to go and see the house he was pleased with the cattle brindled longhorns they were and very strong with so few people using oxen for farm work they were cheaper a power than they used to be so he was cheerful since neither then nor at any other time did he seem cast down by my sorrow how could he know indeed that my heart was bleeding because of miss dorabella and the old men on the bench he was angered because he thought it disgrace to himself that a hair shotten lip should be cast up against one of his family and a scent of witchcraft into the bargain but for me he took no thought any more than if i was one of the new-bought oxen that somebody prodded in passing by he whistled under breath as we went along the by-road that led to the house he'd set his mind on i'd never been along that way for it lay outside the town on the other road from ours and when we did come in we hadn't much time for gadding about we soon left the coach road and were in a lane with deep frozen ruts in it and high hedges white over with rime the evening was closing in a bit but gideon said never mind we'd manage the beasts all right for it'd be light as day when the moon rose he was very wrought up about the house i could see so i agreed to all he said for i never liked to dampen down anybody's pleasure lord knows there's little now in the world and gideon was ever one that took life hard so when it turned out that he'd planned to treat me to a dish of tea after at the mug of cider and have a chat about all we meant to do seeing we could know when mother was by i said naught again it though i thought i'd liefer have gone into hell's mouth than face it but gideon wanted to talk while the holiday feeling was on him afore the dumbness of san got the better of him again for it was a most peculiar thing how you couldn't speak your heart out at san and i never knew whether it was the big trees brooding or the heavy rheumatic feeling of being so close to the water or the old ancient house full of the remembrances of old ancient people or that there was somewhat foreboded so gideon kept his thoughts and turned them over and over in his mind like a snowball till at last the snowball was too much for six strong men to shift and nigh big enough to bury anybody we went through a gate into an avenue like a carriage drive 
At the end there was another gate, with balls on posts, very grand. Within was a carriage sweep, and flower-knots trimly capped. We stood there looking through the wrought-iron gates at the place that Gideon said was to be ours. It was new, built since Queen Anne died, and it was a desperate big house, very solid, with four windows each side the door, and over the door a porch of stone. Above the eight windows were eight more, and over them dormer windows that Gideon said would be the windows of the men-servants and the maid-servants. There were steps up to the door, and a stone mounting block with steps also, and a walled garden at one side, and a round pigeon-coat. No light showed, and the place had a melancholy look, so still it was, so dark, in its dark still trees. I'd leaf there was a light, I said. Dear to goodness, a light? It wanna be dark this hour, to call dark. What do they want with a light? The housekeeper can spin by firelight, I hope, and an old chap can sit in the chimney-corner and set his mind on a better world without wasting tallow, let alone wax. Gideon had taken over the management already, seemingly, and I was bound to laugh. You seem pretty anxious, the poor gentleman should set his mind on a better world, I say. Why, so I am, but not too soon. It'd never do for the old chap to go out all of a lantern puff afore we've got the money together, say, in about ten year. So he's to order his coffin in ten years' time? Poor gentleman. You be very sharp today, Prue, says he, but he's bound to go some day. No danger. We mun bide our time. He's Miss Dorabella's great-uncle, inna he? Ah, wanna they want it for young Mr. Camperdine? Laws, no, he's after a bishop's palace. Nor yet his cousin? Dear, no, he'll never bide long in a place, that lad wanna. A rolling stone he be, and a caution. No, it be put up to auction when the old man goes, and you and me must mind to get the money ready. Why, look ye a light, I says. Where? Why, there, in that lower window on the garden side. I saw it as well as could be, a large pale light, wandering from window to window downstairs, and then sliding up in a long window that seemed to go down the stair, and beginning over again in the upper story. One window would shine for a minute, then go black, then another shine. It had a very strange, uncontented look, wondering like that. There's nothing so contented as a steadfast light, but a flickering light going to and again in a void is a sad thing to see. It went on like that a long time, and the cold strengthened. There was no sound at all. We stood there like beggars outside the gate, and the unquiet light wandered in the dark. All of a sudden it went out. Oh, it's gone out, I says. Oh, dearie, dearie me. What of that, says Gideon. I wanted it to steady and come to rest in a window and shine out with a heartening glow, I said, but now it's gone out. 
It distressed me mightily that it should go out, so that I wrung my cold hands together, though why it should hurt me thus I couldna say. It was but the housekeeper looking for her knitting needles, or old Camperdine seeking his snuff-box, and now they've found it, they've doubted the light. Very sensible, too. No, I said, no, it was love, lad, wanting to steady and shine, but the house was too much for it. The dark's closed in now, the light's doubted. And I began to cry, which was a foolish thing to do. But Gideon wasna so angered as he met have been, for he was in a good temper about the oxen and the house. You're sickening for summat, he said, for you be no crybaby, Prue. Come on to your tea now, while I tell you all that's in my mind. I've a deal to say, for that little vixen of Camperdine's has changed my mind for me, so I must tell you the new plans as well as the old. We turned away from the shut gate as dumb as stones, and we left all the twenty-four windows with no light in them, and the dark trees with no breath of air in them, lying there in the vast of night. End of Book Two, Chapter Two